name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it's not Cinco de Mayo yet. It's May 4th. It's 2008. And our message this morning is called, You Said It. You got that? You Said It. Turn with me then uh, to John 6. We're going to start with the pastor's corner on your bulletin. I've never really preached from a format or from bulletins before, but when they gave me the opportunity to write the bulletin, then I suddenly didn't feel confined by it. <laughs> Tell me when you're in John 6. Okay, well, two of you were there. Casey Callahan and I were watching the History Channel last night. And on the History Channel, this was the International History Channel, they pretty frequently have programs about the footsteps of Jesus. I'm always intrigued because I like to see the archaeology in it. I like to hear what people are saying, and I recognize the settings. Having been to Israel a couple times, it holds a very fond place in my heart. And when I see people talking about things that I've touched, that I've witnessed, it blesses my heart. One of the things that I was very concerned about and was very proud of Casey about immediately is they listed their scholars and they worked their way through the Ivy League as they list their scholars and present their points. And there was a woman who was a professor of religion at Princeton University. Undoubtedly, this is a very intelligent woman. How would she get to be a professor of religion at Princeton University if she did not possessed the capacity for great learning. And yet, she had weapons-grade stupidity. And when I say weapons-grade stupidity, I mean stupidity that is beyond normal stupid. The kind of stupid that will hurt other people. Because she was held up as a professor of a prestigious school, and she said two things in the course of 30 seconds that any student of the Bible, and Casey picked him up immediately, immediately knows is wrong. The first thing she said is Jesus Christ was illiterate. If Jesus was illiterate, then how did he read from the scroll of Isaiah? If Jesus was illiterate, then how was he the king of the Jews, the most educated people on the planet during the first century? The second thing that she said was that there was no time during his ministry in which he claimed to be divine, that that was added later after the four Gospels. What's interesting is you move from one scholar to the next and they're commenting on each other and nobody thought that that was worth commenting about. We're not talking about the Da Vinci commode. We were talking about people talking about the life of Christ and people in schools that were once centers of theology and seminaries. And nobody thought this was strange. You know, just a couple years after the Protestant Reformation, the average guy on the street could quote more scripture than the priest who had previously been in charge of teaching it to them. Now that we're several hundred years past, and there's a Bible in every hotel room, every hospital room, and on every corner, we don't think it's precious enough to learn at times. Well, this morning, I wanted to walk you through some things that I hope will both enlighten you and also maybe equip you to deal with the weapons-grade stupidity that exists out there. Okay? So in John 6, let's start with an I am statement. Now, when we talk about I am statements, you need to know something. And these are printed in your pastor's corner on your bulletin. You need to know something, that 
Although the New Testament is recorded in Greek, these were people who, at the very least, prayed in Hebrew. And what I mean by that is Nick speaks Spanish fluently. But during his home life, he doesn't speak Spanish, not unless he's joking around. Because he's an English-speaking person who learned Spanish. The Hebrews in Judea, the Hebrews who were native to Israel, but especially the ones in Judea, could speak several languages. And Greek was at the top of the list. But when they prayed and when they went to synagogue and when they read the word, it was always in Hebrew. So even if they were speaking Greek, they thought like Hebrews. I think you can make a decent argument from the sentence structures throughout the word that most of our Greek texts have behind them a Hebrew origin. Having said that, when we say I am, you ought to recognize that because in Exodus 3, 14, this is how God himself chose to express himself to Moses. Moses says, who do I say sent you? Sent me. Who, who could I say sent me? He said, you tell him that I am that I am sent you. That's Yahweh and then a word that means that and then Yahweh. There are other ways to translate it. Sometimes people say, I will be that I will be. In fact, you can translate it in any tense. But the preferred is, I am that I am. When a Jew says, I am, they take special care not to pronounce the word Yahweh. In fact, they find other ways to say it. And yet Jesus made no such attempt to avoid being associated with the words that Jews would call Adonai. He made no attempt to separate himself from being identified with Yahweh. Here are some of these statements, and we'll get into some specific ones, but I want to teach you some of the things Jesus said about himself first. In John 6, starting in the 26th verse, Jesus answered the crowd, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Before we move on from there, and I do have more to read you on this note, the Son of Man is a term that both Ezekiel used and Daniel used. And if you research this term carefully, it was always used in connection with a Messiah-like figure or God himself. They saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. They spoke of the Son of Man in a throne-like existence in which he was representing God. And when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, it's true that he's identifying himself with humanity. But if you understand the Hebrew background behind it, it's far more than that. He's identifying himself with their hopes of the Messiah. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Let's imagine for a moment that Fred sent somebody to Afghanistan to go speak with people in Afghanistan. If they were sent by Fred, for Fred, who would they represent while they were there? Fred. No different when God sends someone. If he sends someone to represent him and gives them his words to speak, they represent God while they're there. Well, how is that any different than if Fred sends me to Afghanistan? I can't perfectly represent Fred. I'm not him. I don't use the same words he does. I don't stand the same way that he does. My facial expressions are not the same as him. We're unique. There are no such distinctions between the Son and Father. 
And if you can find them, please point them out to me. But Hebrews says he is the perfect reflection of the invisible God. Perfect, meaning no flaws in him. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? That's interesting since he has just fed thousands of people with, with crumbs. What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It seems that proof to them would be of something fell from heaven that was edifying for them. That would be proof of divinity. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying that he is sent from the Father to bring life to the world. Do you have problems in your life, saints? Yeah, I do too. Did you know that we have the same problems many times? Now, I don't have the same problems as Mandy. Or how about this one, the same problem as Cassidy. Cassidy was in the hospital last night because she's pregnant. I've never been in the hospital because I was pregnant. Never. That's good news, isn't it? And yet we suffer from the exact same problem. All of us are facing death. That problem's come on humanity. So what would you say about a guy who says, I am sent from heaven, I'm the only thing that will feed you and give you life? Would you say that that's a little bit different than the rest of the human race? Maybe so. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Who fed them in the desert? God did. Who is talking about feeding them now? How about that? Jesus. Jesus has no problem putting himself in that position or considering himself equal with God, although he never tried to grasp it, Philippians said. He didn't demand that others recognize it. This will get clearer and clearer as we go. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. The Jews believed that on the last day of the Messianic age, I'm sorry, first day of the Messianic age, last day of their regular existence, there would be a worldwide resurrection in which every Israelite would be raised from the dead never to see death again. Anybody know where they got such a concept? It's right from the 39 books that some people call the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of that hope, the largest hope in Israel, the guy who has power over death. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They understand that there's a problem with the origins. Jesus is claiming to have his origins in a heavenly place, and they know of his humble earthly origins. How can he say, I came down from heaven? To this, Jesus answered, Stop grumbling among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Who's standing there teaching them? Jesus is. And yet what scripture does he quote? Quotes Isaiah 54:13. This is, don't you worry, little Israel. The Lord himself will teach you. Could you not say that that was a claim to be God in a roundabout way? Well, why a roundabout way? I mean, we're Americans. Why not, if you possess a talent, show the world? Why not drive a bigger car than everyone else, have a fatter bank account than everyone else, and be as flamboyant as possible? Because they were Jews and they were cloaked in humility. They would not even say God's name. They said things like, blessed be he. (laughs) That sounds funny to us, doesn't it? Blessed be he. And yet this is the way a pious Jew would pray because they thought that using God's name frivolously was an insult to him. The same way that some might show respect for a foreign dignitary by not calling them by their first name. It would seem too personal. So they substituted words and pronouns for the use of God's name so that they would say things like, Blessed be He. So what do you think it means if Yeshua says, I am He? If He puts Himself in the position of not only God's name, but also the pronoun that they use to represent God's name. I'm not trying to make a technical language argument. I'm trying to suggest that the only way somebody from Princeton University gets away with standing up on national television and telling everyone that Jesus was illiterate and never claimed to be God is when we absolutely have no understanding of the culture that the Bible was given to us from. Because I'm going to show you as many as we have time for today. I can do it nine times in the book of John without thinking about it, where Jesus absolutely equates himself with God. He's standing there teaching Israel and says, doesn't the Scripture say the Lord will teach you? Do you think they really missed that? I can prove to you that they didn't because they pick up rocks to throw at him sometimes. Because although he's claiming to be God, he looks an awful lot like a regular Joe. What might the message be in that for you? God dwells in the high and lofty places, but also with men who are contrite and humble. Where do we want to be? If we're contrite and humble, there's nothing that He won't do through us. In fact, the real message here is not that Jesus is claiming to be divine. When He says He's the bread of life, He's telling you He's the only thing that will really satisfy you, despite what the Snickers commercials say. And I've tried. I've eaten lots of Snickers myself. And I might eat a few more today. But they don't really satisfy, do they? They pass right on through your life like every other phase that ever did. Now, I know that none of you in here have done this, but I can remember some times in my loved one's lives and my own lives where we went through strange adolescent phases. Our clothing suddenly changed. Our music interests changed radically. I one time went from the harshest of rap music to country music. And I went from those baggy jeans, we always wore them above our waist, to pro-rodeo wranglers overnight. Glaring contradiction to some. You might say that we were searching for an identity and that that's a normal phase that people go through. Jesus is telling this entire crowd of people in a way that they should uniquely understand. I'm what you have to search for every day that will give you life. I'm the only thing that can give you life. Does that sound like the claim of a normal man? 
I would say he's either insane or he's telling the truth. And for thousands of years, we've had to decide which until we all just get so pitifully ignorant of the word that we don't even understand what he said. We just say things like, God is love. God's love, all the religions basically teach the same thing. That guy with the funny hat told me so. Hmm. Turn with me then to John 8. See if we'll get this one even clearer than taught by the Lord. Now, I love John 8. It's very painful for me not to read you the whole thing. And those of you that come to the Foundations class, I'm sorry that some of this is review, but I hear repetition is a great teacher. Those of you that don't come to the Foundations class, I understand. Probably too basic for you. I'm sure you already know all of this. In John 8:12, Jesus makes another I am statement. When Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever, wa- whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh, I get it. We've all heard this many times. Jesus is saying he's a light bulb, right? The light of the world. Who introduced light into darkness? God did. God appeared in a pillar of fire at night as a great light in the sky and in a glowing pillar of cloud during the day, a great light, and led Israel for 40 years. That was how God represented himself to them. So when they looked, they didn't say, oh, look, a cloud that represents God. It's obviously symbolic of God. They simply said, God's moved. We need to move. God has camped. We need to camp. Now, intellectually, they understood that the cloud itself was not God. But they spoke as if it was God because it was God's representative. The setting where these words take place is outside the treasury in the temple. And it just happens that there are four giant golden menorahs. You know what the chief representation of the menorah is? You guessed it, God. God's spirit. It burned eternally in the Holy of Holies and never went out. You might say that it is and it always would be. Or it uh, exists now and will exist forever. And at this moment, the Jews are celebrating a feast. Now, I'm sure that this woman from Princeton has the intellectual capacity to grasp this. We need to stop and ask, why didn't she grasp it? Do you think that maybe after a couple thousand years of westernizing Christianity, particularly after the 4th century, when Rome began to break apart the world, put up iron curtains, eastern and western hemispheres, eastern and western churches, and shape the way that everyone thought about the Scripture, do you think maybe we lost touch with things like a Jewish feast in the setting in which Jesus is saying this? Because to be clear, the feast is a feast called Sukkot. Another way to say that in English is tabernacles. And what does the Feast of Tabernacles represent? That's right, saints. It represents the time period that Israel followed God as a symbol of light in the sky, both day and night. They moved when he moved. They stopped when he stopped. And now there is a Jewish man standing at a Jewish feast of tabernacles in a place where there are lights that represent God, four great big ones, and saying, those aren't the light of the world. I am. Can we then really say that Jesus never called himself God? And can we call him illiterate? Can you call him illiterate because he knows these things? Probably not, huh? I know none of you are in that boat. That's not my point. 
My point is, how many times do we read these Scriptures and never consider what time of year it is? How many times do we read these Scriptures and never consider anything but the plain text of the words themselves? And the words are good. I love them. But doesn't it mean more to you to know that they're standing at the Feast of Tabernacles and the location, the location's given in Scripture, by the way. And given the location, you know what is surrounding it and what that meant to the people? Keep reading with me. We'll start back in 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged Him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on My own behalf, My testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. He's talking about the presence of God. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself, and the other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. How is that possible? How could you know the Son and know the Father also by knowing the Son? It's only possible if they're exact copies of each other. If in looking at the Son, you see the very nature of the Father. If seeing the Son rescue a woman from stones flying through the air, you know that that's exactly what the Father would do. If seeing the Son pardon someone who had leprosy by healing them, you know that that's what the Father would do. I've said this before, and I mean it wholeheartedly. I love the what would Jesus do bracelets, but I would prefer us to think about it as what did Jesus already do? Because He's already shown us what the heart of God is. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. That's how we know it's immediately beneath those candelabras, the menorahs. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and when you look for me, you will look for me and you will indeed die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says this? Where I go, you cannot come. But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Do you have a footnote for the one I claim to be? I am He. That word is Yahweh if He's speaking Hebrew. If it's Greek, it's not. But he is a Hebrew person standing in a Hebrew temple where they prayed in Hebrew, read in Hebrew, and wrote in Hebrew. He said, I am he. Now, your NIV writers put in brackets there, the one I claim to be. Well, what is it he's claiming to be? He just claimed to be the light of the entire world, the thing that you are supposed to follow as God. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. Doesn't sound as if Jesus thought his message was unclear, does it? How about that? Turn with me to John 10. 
In John 10, starting in verse 1. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. King James used to say, verily, verily. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. What a strange statement to make. I am the gate for the sheep. Except Micah 2.13 said that there would be a gate broken open in a wall and God himself would lead the people as sheep through that gate. Do you think maybe this would recall in their minds that setting? Them as sheep, Jesus as a gate and God leading them through? I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's one more I am statement that is pretty excellent. I am the good shepherd. Now, if you thought this was vague up to this point, you say, Eric, you know, maybe the woman had a point. Jesus didn't say it directly. Saying he's the bread of life or the light of the world or the gate, that just didn't do it for me. The good shepherd is an interesting feature in Scripture. If you were put in slavery for 70 years in Babylon, and during that time period, prophets were prophesying to you about better days, don't people always want to hear about better days? It's one thing if I stand up and tell you you're all going to hell, right? It'd be easy to tune that out because that's not what anybody would want to hear. But when we stand up and say, oh, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Your pillows will be softer. Your beds will be more comfortable. Your cars will be more fuel efficient. And your bank accounts will get fatter. All of a sudden, people begin to listen. Ezekiel prophesied during a Babylonian captivity. And he began to tell Israel about better days. And he described God himself as a good shepherd as opposed to the shepherds who had been leading the people. Keep your finger here and let's go to Ezekiel. We'll be in Ezekiel 34. Do you think maybe it's a mistake to teach the New Testament is separate from the Old? If the President gives a State of the Union address, and he refers constantly to a history of his country. Quotes from the Gettysburg Address, quotes from the Declaration of Independence, quotes from historical things that happened to your country, and yet the people have no knowledge of those historical things. Do you think his words could be somewhat of a mystery? Maybe one of the reasons that people have not understood some of the things that Jesus said is because they have no idea about the background that took place before he said it. Is that important at all? Do you think it could be important to know, I don't know, on September 12th what had happened on September 11th? Do you think maybe that adds context when people speak? When Jesus stands up and says he's the good shepherd, you need to know that all of Israel had a certain hope. And it's found in Ezekiel 34. 
Ezekiel 34, starting with the first verse. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. By the way, has Jesus not been feeding people for the last... Well, we're in the 10th chapter of John. He's done it twice already. Has he been caring for people, healing people who were paralyzed? Just healed somebody who was blind? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Sounds like a situation in which God's people are being devoured because His shepherds are not doing their job. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and will look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. If Jesus stands up in light of that and says, Israel, I am the good shepherd, how could that not be equated with divinity? God Himself said He would be a shepherd to the sheep. He would do everything that those leaders failed to do. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees? There was no gambling problem among them. There was no alcoholism problem among them. No internet pornography problem among the Pharisees. Why was he so hard on the Pharisees? They were supposed to be shepherding Israel. And they were falling down on the job. In fact, one time he gives them a glowing endorsement everybody misses. He says, do what they say. They sit in Moses' seat. Just don't do what they do. Apparently, they preached well and lived poorly. Jesus came to live well. You decide whether he preached well or not. People can stand on Discovery Channel or History Channel and they can be critical. And they can say things like Jesus never claimed to be God or Jesus was illiterate. And people just change the channel. Doesn't bother us at all. Doesn't bother us that they're in charge of educating the youth in one of the nation's finest colleges. We just change the channel. Who can really know, right? I mean, one reads it and gets one interpretation, another reads it and gets another. How do you really know, saints? Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus said it in John to the woman at the well. Salvation is from the Jews. When we study their background, when we study their culture, it begins to shed light to what their king tells us, doesn't it? 
You could read this and say Jesus claimed to be a shepherd, and yet there's never a time in which he tended sheep. So what do you think he's talking about? You could read it and say when Jesus says he's the gate, you could look for a doorknob on his chest. Wouldn't that be ignorant, though? Wouldn't it be a whole lot better to go, why did he say that? What's he referring to? Especially when the text says they didn't understand his figure of speech. So he went on and explained himself. He's the good shepherd. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, if he's the shepherd and you're the sheep, that means he desires to lead you into places where you'll be edified and kept safe. So what did God ever tell you to do that was bad for you? Why do we resist? Sometimes we inherently want what's bad for us, don't we? We don't understand what will destroy us. Didn't Jesus weep over Jerusalem and say, if you'd only know what would bring you comfort? They didn't get it either. And they'd been uniquely designed for it. Their culture taught about it from birth. Everywhere they looked when they walked in and out of their houses, they saw a little box that contained the Word of God that they thought of as life. It was called the mezuzah, and they touched it every day. And now a living, walking Word of God is before them as life. And when they touch Him, they don't see it. I can have more compassion on them for not seeing it in the first century because they had to look at the guy who had skin and hair and everything else just like us. I can have more compassion on them. But to after 2,000 years of him changing people's lives like mine, people of little and no account but doing extraordinary things, how could you say something like that? Hmm. In John 11, the 25th verse, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He asked her if she believed this, and she said, Yes, Lord. Jews were not in the custom of calling each other Lord. Occasionally you find in the Scripture where a Jew speaks to someone in a position of authority and calls them Lord. But it's usually a foreign diplomat who required it. Jesus spoke by saying, I am the resurrection. The only way a Hebrew could say this is to pronounce the word Yahweh. If this is not clear yet, I promise that it will get more clear. Go to John 15. Isn't it nice that all these scriptures are in order for you? You can thank the Apostle John. He wrote the letter. I'm just reading it. 15.1 I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. That's a wonderful hermeneutic key, isn't it? I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Go back and read it then. I am the true vine. Who's that? Jesus. And my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch. What's a branch? You. You. I was taught that that was areas of your life. And I was taught that because it's uncomfortable to interpret it correctly. Jesus said that he's the vine and you are the branches. When you read it that way, it has a little sting to it though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know what else had a thing to it? Israel thought of themselves as a vine. 
It's kind of neat. They're pictured several ways in the Bible. They're pictured as a fig tree sometimes. That is considered religious Israel. Sometimes they're pictured as a natural vine. Because vines stretch out on the ground and they go in every direction. And Israel was covering the earth. They were multiplying as God had said. Other times they're spoken of as an olive tree. An anointed Israel. The olive trees gave the anointing oil to the priests. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, Israel was God's plan of salvation on the planet. There was no other people group anywhere that he revealed himself in the way that he did to Israel. To Israel, he showed up on a mountain. To Israel, he showed up in the pillar of fire. To Israel, he gave all of the prophets. To Israel, the written word, all of those things. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the true way to be saved. Which, by the way, he said six times previously already. How about this one? Turn with me to Revelation, also a book written by John. Y'all still awake? Okay. When you get to Revelation, the first chapter, you will put your right hand there. Then you're going to turn with your left hand to Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, right hand, Revelation 1, left hand, Isaiah 46. Okay? So you're holding your Bible. Follow me like this, saints. Okay? The way you can turn a page, and guess what happens when you turn that giant page? A couple thousand years of history passes. Okay? So in Isaiah 46, I'm going to read you a scripture that starts in the ninth verse. You can read with me, then we'll turn a couple thousand years. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, the ancient times from what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Did you hear that He is God, and that He makes known the end from the beginning? The end from the beginning. Y'all with me there? All right, turn couple thousand years of history. Now you're in Revelation. First little red words in the book of Revelation, starting in the 8th verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What is Alpha? It's the beginning, and the Omega is the end. Says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. Well, maybe we're talking about somebody besides Jesus here. What's the first verse of Revelation say? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place soon, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So who's the angel speaking about? It's got to be Jesus. Isaiah said 740 years before Jesus that God was the kind of God who knew the end before he started the beginning, and he would make his purpose stand. Now in the last book of our canon of Scripture, written almost 100 years into the first century, but writing about the end of time, He's telling us that there will be a day in which Jesus stands and says, I was the beginning, I was the end, and I was to come, and I am now, and I always will be. Another way you might say that is, I am that I am. One's written in Greek, another's written in Hebrew, but they're expressing the same thing. I'm the one who has always existed and always will exist. Is that the claim of a man? Turn with me to Mark. What was the title of our sermon? Oh, y'all already forgot. How about that? 
You said it. You said it. Mark 14. Yes, there's a lot of Bible turning in this church. Yeah, we don't preach our own opinions. We don't get a magazine from some denominational headquarters with somebody else's opinion. We do our very best to search the Word of God every day, to look for the fresh bread for today. In Mark 14, you have a title that says Jesus Arrested. Then Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like the Congress of Israel. Some 70 members, sometimes people say 72, made up of Sadducees, made up of Pharisees, made up of very learned men. And they have a format for their questioning. And they're in charge of the nation of Israel and its direction. Now Jesus has been arrested, and I guess we should start in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. How proud of you are when you find out Peter followed Jesus at a distance? Probably not very, huh? What happens? You know, Peter denies him, right? I want to submit to you an idea before we go on with our message. If you don't want to deny Jesus on that day, don't follow him at a distance today. When we stand off at a distance, it means that we want to be associated with him at some times and not at other times. When we're scared for people to understand how closely we're linked with Jesus, it's because we're worried about being persecuted for it or being seen as a hypocrite. And both are good experiences to have. When somebody sees you as a hypocrite, what does that give you a chance to do? Be corrected and learn and grow. When you're persecuted, what does it give you a chance to do? Suffer for His name. Be a part of Him. How good is that? The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put Him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against Him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against Him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Is that false testimony, really? No, he actually said it, didn't he? Except he wasn't talking about the temple standing before them. He was talking about his body. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the... Uh, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Would you say it like that? Would you say, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? You probably wouldn't. What would you say? Are you Christ, the Son of God? But Jews are uncomfortable, and so they put in here, a term that they understand to mean God. Kind of like when I told you earlier, if Jesus says, I am He, it's the same as saying, I am God. The Son of the Blessed One, because they don't want to say His name. I am. You got a comma after that? I am? What does a comma indicate? A pause. Those words, if He's speaking in Hebrew, and don't you think that a high priest 
speaking to a Jew who claims to be a king, and that Jew who claims to be a king speaking with his high priest. Don't you think they spoke Hebrew to each other? I know the words were recorded in Greek. That's so you and I could read them. But they wrote in Hebrew. They prayed in Hebrew. And I suspect they spoke Hebrew to each other. So what would it be when he says, I am? He just pronounced the name of God to this man. He just said Yahweh. So much for Jesus never claimed to be God, huh? And you will see the Son of Man. What did I tell you that was? Another messianic term that is equivalent with God. Sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, maybe the priest didn't understand. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? Yes, you have heard the blasphemy. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, the high priest sure thought that he did. The high priest tore his clothes, and clothes were hard to come by in those days, expensive to make. He tore his clothes in response because the law tells you that when somebody has blasphemes, you're supposed to stone them, and then there's a ritual of mourning for having allowed them into your midst. The priest understood him to be claiming himself God. Go with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, same scenario, something's added. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. This is silent as to the charge about the temple. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This language is the same language that's used when Joshua commands Achan to tell about his sin. And it had developed in Israel's history that if a high priest gave you this charge, you were not allowed to remain silent or it was considered sin because he held a position of authority. And that position of authority demanded that you answer the truth to him when he asked you. Yes, it is as you say. You know what's really neat about this? is because of the way Hebrew would say this. We translate the thought, we translate the words the best we can, and what we get is, yes, it is as you say, and that's right. But the way Hebrew would say this was, those are your words and they're true. That's how Hebrew would say that. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Of course he did. And they understood it and they killed him for it. You've heard that Jesus was killed for treason. Have you heard that? That's why the Romans killed him. And there was a miraculous transformation that occurred between the time he was convicted in the Sanhedrin and in the illegal trial and the time he shows up before Pilate. The charges change. He's thought of in in the Sanhedrin as being killed for blasphemy. But by the time he gets to the Romans, the charge is treason. You know why? Because Caesar claimed to be God. And now we have another one in our midst. How about that? Did Jesus claim to be God? Well, despite... What the woman said from Princeton, he most certainly did. I think some of my favorites, though, we need to get to are in John. Let's go to John 18. And we'll wind this down. Do you see that little section that says additional I am statements? That's because I don't want to read them all to you. But in Mark 14, we read one. In John 4:26, he's speaking with the woman at the well. And she goes, I know when the Christ comes, he'll explain this. 
It doesn't quite render it this way in your English Bible, but if you're going to say his answer in Hebrew, it says, Woman, I who speak to you am he. I am he. That phrase shows up nine times in the book of John alone. I am he. Nine times in Jesus' common speech did he claim to be God. He just did it in a Jewish way. Uh, as you move through each one of those, they, they mention them, but I want you to hear this one in John 18 because it's impossible to miss. In John 18, we'll start in the fifth verse. If I can find John 18 fast. There we go. Uh, we'll start in the fourth verse. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. Jesus is in a garden praying, being pressed at this moment, and he sees a crowd coming. Who is it you want? It's almost like he's tempting them to ask or, or tell him. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you think Jesus ever claimed to be God? The men who came to get him in the garden at the mention of his name spoken in Hebrew, Yahweh, fell down because they couldn't stand in his presence. Of course he did. The question not so much is not so much, though, did the woman at Princeton understand whether or not Jesus was God? The question was not so much, did she call him illiterate? The question is not so much about her weapons-grade stupidity. Is do you live as if he's God? See, to most, Jesus is just a good teacher. To most, he has wise axioms, things we should all live by. But if you examine what he actually says, he demands your obedience in your daily life. He tells you when he says he's the bread of life that he's the only thing that can sustain you. Do we live as if that's true? He tells you when he says he's the light of the world, he's the only thing that can lead you. Do we live as if that's true? When he says he's the gate, he is the entrance requirement into God's way of life for you. When he says he's the good shepherd, he's the only one that really cares for you. Others that do are working on his behalf. When he says he's the resurrection and the life, he's the only solution to the death problem that we all have. When he says he's the true vine, he's that thing, that salvation plan that you have to remain in and do everything not to be cut off from because he's the only way to God's kingdom. When he says he's the Alpha and the Omega, what he's telling you is my purpose stands. Whether you stand with him or not, his purpose now, I understand that this woman was educated enough to know better. The reason we study the Hebrew background of Scripture as much as we do is so that somebody can't float a lie by you. Simply because you can't find the words in a concordance that says, I am God, does not mean that Jesus didn't say it. Nine times in a row under those additional statements, he says it. I may not have listed them all. I was in a hurry this morning. But he says it nine times in the book of John alone. That doesn't even mention Luke and all of the other places that he does. He actually said it to Pilate too. He wanted Pilate to know what he was doing. When did he say it to you? When did he first become to you something more than a religious idea? When did he first become to you something that commanded your obedience? And then how have you acted towards him since? Does your life tell the world that he's God? Or does your life tell the 
world that he's just a good guy that should be respected occasionally. Maybe Christmas and Easter. See, I want to live a life that leaves no, no room for doubts. I want to show everyone. I want them to have to ask a question. Why is that guy the way that he is? Then I can look at them and tell them with all of my heart that Yeshua is the bread that sustains me. He's the light that guides me. He's my entrance requirement into all things that God has for me. He's a shepherd that has the right to correct me, lead me, tell me to stop, lay down, stand on my head if he wants to, because that's what he is to me. That he's the beginning of my life and the end of my life. Turn with me to Romans. We read one more scripture. The good news is you get to eat after this. You and I aren't Jews. At least, I don't know any of you that are Jews in here today. So sometimes when we talk about Hebraic customs, when we talk about Jewish backgrounds of scriptures, it seems foreign to us. So God appointed an apostle who was uniquely qualified to minister to Jews and then said, go minister to Gentiles. God always puts us in a position of weakness that He can be glorified. And everywhere He goes, when He begins to see success among the Gentiles, Jews beat him up because they didn't like what he was doing. And this is his letter, and it's written to a church in Rome that was made of Jews and Gentiles. And listen to what he says, starting in the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him and for His name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. We were all called to a life of obedience to Jesus as our King that is based on our trust in Him. He goes on to tell other Gentile churches that when you do this, your trust is being reported to Him all over the world and people are believing as a result of that. In His great commission, Jesus told them to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey. And then He goes on to talk about baptism. I'm suggesting today that Jesus said what He was. They don't have to accept it at Princeton. Muslims can lie and say he was just a prophet. So many of the cults can lie and say he was just a prophet. But if you listen to what the prophet said, the prophet claimed to be more than a prophet. He claimed to be God. The question is not so much that, but what is he to you? And I leave you with that today. What is he to you? What does your life show he is to you? Y'all go ahead and stand and we'll pray. As to this question of, was Jesus God? Did you notice that in the beginning, Jesus began speaking in a very Hebraic way? But later, when asked, He simply said, those words about me came from you. You said it, I didn't, would be the English way to say that. They must have understood His claim to be God if they're accusing Him of having said it, huh? Amazing that God would reveal something in a little storefront church 
that they don't understand in the great halls of the Ivy League schools, huh? It seems that God has hidden His wisdom from the wise and revealed it to the low and humble. I'm proud to be in that group, and I just want to do something with it. Can you all say amen to that? Let's pray.